The following is a breakout session from the 2014 Acts 29 conference in Dallas. Given the interactive nature of breakouts and Q&A, there may be extended periods of silence. Let's uh, go ahead and get settled in. Okay. So... Our next uh, speaker is Bruce Wesley. He is the pastor of Clear Creek Community Church in um, the Houston area. What, what is the name of the, uh, the city in Houston or the? League City. League City, that's right. And um, so, so Bruce, like I said earlier, it, he's, been, he's been doing this for a while. He did a session, if you... It, I would highly recommend you write this down and go look at this later. So we did a West Regional, and Bruce was one of the speakers last year, and he did a session called What I've Learned in 25-plus Years of Church Planting. And if you haven't seen that session, you need to go watch that session and uh, re-watch it and show it to your team. And, um, but, uh, yeah, it was a great session. He's going to talk to us today about financial responsibility, but uh, what I asked him to talk about is, is some of the internal stuff in the church. So I don't, I don't know where you exactly decided to focus, but I'm looking forward to it. So thank you. Thanks, Harvey. And I really appreciated the last session. I'm taking a lot of that home with me. Um, and when Harvey and I spoke, it was really about uh, he would focus on how we're going to lead the church from the platform. I'm going to focus on what we're going to do to lead the church financially uh, from the boardroom, so kind of behind the scenes in the life of the church. And for some of you, maybe as a lead pastor, you're thinking, well, that's what my executive pastor does. And it is what our executive pastors do, but it is something that, that we lead with our executive pastors. At the end of the day, we feel responsibility for the funding of God's church. And so there's a lot of upfront with that and a lot behind the scenes as well. And so uh, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And I want to read, starting in verse 1, with our focus on verse 2 in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, which says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So in this passage, what are we stewarding in this passage? It's right there, guys. Okay, the mysteries of God. So we're, we're stewarding the gospel, right? So... We are stewards, we're not owners of anything, we're God's managers, we're submitted to Jesus in all things, and yet what does he say in the next phrase? Because he's going to give us an understanding of what it is to be a steward, and he says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. So when we start handling money, God's money, money within the church, the driving force of a steward is that he, she be found trustworthy. That's true of the money that I have in my bank account at home. It's true of the money that's in the bank account at Clear Creek Community Church. It's fundamentally about being trustworthy. So everything I'm about to say to you really is built around the idea of what does trustworthiness look like? And how can we communicate to the entire church that we are handling all the money that they, because of their stewardship, have given to God and His church, that we too, as leaders of His church, are going to handle that uh, in a trustworthy manner. So let me give you a little introduction to Clear Creek Community Church because uh, we're a little older as a congregation. We planted on uh, Reformation Sunday 
October 31st, 1993. That means we're 21 years old. Uh, we are a church with multiple campuses, seven services in a week, average weekly attendance of about 5,000, and an annual budget of 6.7 million this year, 7.1 million in the year to come, with um, net assets of about $22,800,000. Now, I say that to you so you can have some perspective of kind of what 21 years of history um, has meant for us. Um, one of the driving forces for us, then, as we manage God's money, it has to do with our value set. And I just want to share with you some value issues along the way. Uh, when it comes to trust, which I do think is the fundamental value of anyone who's managing God's money, we believe that, that trust runs on the rails of transparency and fiscal responsibility. That every way that we lead in God's church, it has to be about transparency and fiscal responsibility, which means that we maintain trust through communication that is clear, concise, and constant. Uh, so we'll talk some about that communication. One of our primary values as a church is not just stewardship, but relentless stewardship. That's exactly how we say it to our whole church. We have four primary values. One of them is relentless stewardship. Uh, we are in the shadow of the Johnson Space Center. We're in a middle, upper middle class area. Uh, people make quite a bit of money. And so one of the things that we do in discipling them is to help them understand how that we are relentlessly stewarding that money, which means any time that God's people give us a dollar, that we've got to treat that dollar with fear and trembling. I would say as pastors, we, we, have, to, um, we have to model two things. One, we know when to be extravagantly generous and when we know how to so pinch that penny that it will irritate even the most frugal person in the church. We've got to do both sides of that. Because when we're using God's money, we don't just live on the extravagantly generous side. But we know what to celebrate, how to celebrate, who to celebrate. Uh, that's part of our relentless stewardship. Another financial value of responsibility for us is mission. We align all of our spending to mission. Uh, one of the things that means is that we don't receive gifts that aren't aligned with our mission. Uh, hopefully you do this too. You know, hopefully you turn away lots of checks that come your way because they come with some kind of string on them, you know, some kind of uh, plan for you to redirect the course of your mission in your church. And uh, so th that's just a good check for our own soul that we want to align to the mission God's called us to. Uh, another value for us is collaboration. We, we say it this way. We don't allow any unilateral decision-making in the life of our church. So all budget spending is part of discipleship. And so if someone leads a ministry, and, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, but uh, when they lead a ministry, well, I'll go ahead and say it now, they're empowered to spend their budget. So people get a line item in the budget. They don't ask for approval, but they know they're going to get accountability. So part of that in terms of collaboration is if you spend any money and you didn't have other people involved in that decision-making, then you... Are not we say this to ourselves? You're not doing your job because your job is to make disciples. And so every time you spend money, when you have your key volunteers as a part of that spending process, you are training them about what values are in the kingdom and how we are doing this together. And we have uh, accountability and responsibility to one another. Uh, in our at our church, no one overspends their budget. Uh, That's a, a cardinal sin, you know, at our, our church because we know that if you're we have a zero-based budget. If you spend, overspend your budget in any way, uh, that means you just took someone else's money without permission. Now, we do adjust budgets in the middle of the year. 
when someone has a legitimate reason why you know, their budget's not going to work, and so they communicate about that, and so we have the freedom for our elders to reallocate those funds, but no one overspends their budget. And then another value for us is just simply unity. Um, you know, we, we receive gifts to the general fund and a few other funds, uh, but we believe that the way we receive funds should create unity in the life of our church. So we receive funds in five ways, to the general fund, the building fund, and then we have only three other ways that we receive money. Given to church planting, given to camps, I'll explain why we receive money given for the sake of camps, and then people in need. So, you know, we'll spend over a quarter of a million dollars uh, every year just trying to help people in our church who have financial stress. Uh, but what we see is uh, camps for children and students is one of the most effective ways that we help them uh, really embrace the gospel of Jesus and trust in Jesus. And so uh, we invest a lot of money to help people be a part of that. Okay, those are some of our, our key financial values. Um, so how do we then get to the point where we live according to this? And that's just our budgeting process. And I'm just going to walk you through what we do in our budgeting process along the way. And uh, all this is available to you. You don't even really have to take notes if you don't want to take notes on this. I'm going to go through it quickly. Uh, the way we budget is our elders set the priorities in our budget. What that means is long before anyone else is doing anything with the budget, our elders are sitting down and saying, if we have a, an uncommitted dollar on the table... With our mission at this stage of the life of our church, what do we want to spend that dollar on? And so our elders uh, decide that before anyone else has any conversations about money. And then the next step for us is our finance team determines our total budget. So let me give you a little structure uh, for us. Our we're a church. We describe ourselves this way. We are elder-overseen, staff-led, volunteer uh, we used to say driven, but we say operated, okay? So uh, our elders oversee, but our staff leads in our church. We have a finance team that works with our executive pastor, and these are all people with expertise in finances, and they actually determine what our bottom line is. So our budgeting process starts with the priorities of our elders pointing to mission, and then our finance team, uh, because we have 21 years of history, uh, takes both our history, kind of what's going on in the life of our church, and determines the, the bottom line for our budget or the big number for our budget. Uh, they're the ones that only about a few, week, a few weeks ago uh, chose to move our budget from 6.7 this year to 7.1 next year. And really, the, they make that decision. The rest of us are going to learn to live within it. Ministry leaders then submit, uh, in our case, budget requests because our budgeting process is for discipleship and for empowerment. And so when I say they, they submit a budget request, and, and I'm going to have this available for you, uh, we just give them a document that all starts with uh, our vision and what you know, their particular vision is and how they move from that vision to a strategy and then how they put numbers to that strategy, and that's what's submitted uh, as a request. As an executive team, then, we allocate the total amounts of the, of the budget. So our executive team receives those requests, and like you, I'm sure, uh, you get a whole lot more requesting than you think you might receive in the coming year, and so we have to adjust everything that's been requested. Uh, that's probably worthy of some conversation as to how we have learned to do that, um, if you want to talk about it. I thought this would be a good time to, to give you some, some general parameters about how we think about uh, you know, the requests that we receive. We generally think that the budget's divided up into these buckets, uh, facilities bucket, 
and, and by the way, we're 21 years old. Some of you are three or four years old. Uh, both the size and the season of the church kind of determines which of these buckets is going to get, you know, the lion's share of what we're talking about. So uh, we're a church with multiple campuses. Uh, we're negotiating a $6 million deal on land right now, so it's, uh, you know, there, there are big numbers involved in that, but we're currently debt-free. And so as a debt-free church uh, today, we're not against debt, and I'll talk more about that, but uh, as a debt-free church, we're going to set aside about 30% of our receipts to facilities. And that's a philosophical thing. Our history shows, and none of our people like to hear this, but when we open a new building, we reach more people for Christ in the season right after opening that space than in other seasons. And so somehow we, we put value on dollars as if a dollar spent on a building is less important than a dollar spent buying little crackers for children's ministry or whatever other thing. And the fact is, what we believe is that all of that goes in one bucket, and that one bucket we call mission. Okay, mission requires people, it requires space, it requires crackers, it requires everything that we do to see the mission of Jesus happen. Uh, but what we fight against is people valuing one of those dollars over another of those dollars, right? They're all valuable dollars. That's why this doesn't say facilities, personnel, and ministry. If you do that, everyone's going to value that ministry dollar a whole lot more. And quite frankly, what that's going to look like is probably about 15% of your budget. Instead of people saying, you know, well, that seems like uh, values are out of whack. Uh, but the fact, all of it's ministry. That's why we say others. So anyway, facilities today, we're about 30%. But in the earlier days, when we first moved into our first building, we were eight and a half years old. We moved into our first building, and about 35% of our budget went to facilities. We try to stay around 50% on personnel. Today, we're at 52. We're fighting, pushing back every way we can to stay around 50% of our budget to personnel. But I think... You know, so some of you are elders and other leaders in the church. Listen, do not have a hard, fast rule about that. The season of your church has to determine that. And the, the fact is, there's sometimes you need to hire just the right guy and just the right guy for whatever reason. God providentially has provided an opportunity for a guy. Maybe he's got a lot of history. Maybe he's maybe he's an older guy like me, and you know, all of his life is set up really making more money than he did when he was 35 years old or 33 years old, and it's going to cost you more to get a guy like that, right? So don't be so focused on percentages that you can't make good decisions along the way. All right, so uh, we're committed to, obviously, church planting. Like all of you are, we've committed to say at least 10% of our receipts go to church planting. And so when we look at the other side of this, uh, the other bucket, uh, we never get down to 5% uh, on that thing. But... Um, those are the, the big buckets. You have to decide what you believe about debt. Uh, if you're going to be committed to being a debt-free church and never have any debt, listen, that's such a defining issue for you that it's really going to be one of the main messages in the life of your church. Uh, we don't have that main message. Our main message is we will take on debt if we think it helps us advance the cause of Christ and the gospel but we're going to do it in a conservative fashion so that we'll have seasons like this where we're out of debt. But when we are out of debt, we're going to set aside at least 25% of our receipts so that we can prepare for future matters. And that just takes a whole lot of organizational discipline. And this is what a real challenge is for church plants is we start as entrepreneurs. And as entrepreneurs, I mean, we're kicking 
scratching, screaming for every penny we can get just to stay afloat, right, to make, make life work. But as the church grows, we have to learn to manage resources very differently. And what that means is we, we begin to set aside money. And there was a day, if we had money set aside, I felt like that was sin. It was like, that's wrong. You got to spend every penny you can to reach as many people as you can because Jesus is coming back and he may come back before the next budget year. And what would you have all this money sitting in the bank for? Well, because we have responsibility to whole lots of people and to keep up the facilities that we have and all that kind of stuff. So point being, we really have to think about debt in a way that's responsible in the long haul for us. All right. Um, so what we try to do is we fight the tendency to, um, because we're out of debt, to use those resources for things other than facilities because our vision includes, I always hesitate to say this, um, it's $100 million for facilities in our vision, $100 million. That sounds astronomical, but it's really not when you look at the long haul, because our vision, if you knew our area, it's a 10-campus vision, and for the resources that are required to reach the 55% of our community who has no faith whatsoever, they identify themselves as nuns, no relationship to any church or any religion, then our efforts to reach them are going to require for us, we think, in our strategy, 10 campuses. And when you do the math on that, it's a, it's a $100 million vision. So we have to set aside money uh, for the future. It also requires, if you take percentages of the, you know, what's it require for personnel? It's a ton of money also, right, to, to have that kind of a vision. So we really fight the tendency to lower personnel costs below the 50% line. And here's why. Because it's hard to recover that. You know, if you ever lower it for facilities and personnel, all of a sudden it gets really challenging to recover that. Some guys will tell you, don't ever get out of debt. Because if you ever get out of debt, your church will fight you against ever going back into debt. I don't believe that. Obviously, we're out of debt. Uh, because we said immediately when we celebrate, we're out of debt. And we said, but we're going to get back in someday. We're going to get back into debt if God doesn't give us all the cash we need for the next steps that we need to take. Because we will use debt for the sake of the kingdom if we need to. That's our bias. I realize some of you have different biases. And I respect that. So the next step for us then is uh, once ministry leaders submit to us their budgets, we adjust uh, or we give to them you know, what their budget allocation is, and they adjust their budgets to the allocated amount, and they report that back. So uh, at the end of this budget process then, there are, we're all, you know, we've all stated clearly what we're going to use the resources that we have for, and then we summarize those budgets, and uh, we put them in one pretty simple you know, presentation. It's not every line item. It's like one sheet, and that, that one sheet goes out to the church, and then members ask questions before we vote on that. Now, uh, we are not a congregational polity church. We are an elder-led, elder-overseen church. But uh, we do vote on an annual budget. And we vote on an annual budget primarily as a means for us to communicate about that budget and to empower people to speak into the whole budgeting process and then feel responsibility for it. You know, sometimes people can say, well, you know what? The way you guys are spending money is not what I committed to. When they vote on an annual budget, they committed to it. 
They committed to fund the budget, and we try to make that clear in the process as well. So over 21 years, we have these meetings uh, prior to the vote on the budget, and we invite people to come and ask questions. And typically, we'll have, um, you know, I mean, we'll invite 5,000 people to come, and we'll have one or two that show up. Now, what does that say? Does it say they're not interested? Maybe. We want to believe that says we trust you guys. Uh, you have 20 years of uh, building trust with us. And then we have this members meeting and we vote uh, to approve the budget. Okay? Uh, next thing I'm going to talk to you about briefly is spending. And uh, so when we do spending, here are a few just values that drive what we do. Uh, ministry leaders are empowered to spend their budgets. If you're a ministry leader at Clear Creek Community Church, when you get your budget, no one is going to ask you any questions about how you spent that money on the front end. But they're going to ask you lots of questions about how you spent that money on the back end. So we want people to feel empowered to lead in their ministry area. Again, no unilateral decision making. We tell them when you do your budgeting, you get all your volunteers in the room, you're making disciples in the way that we budget. If you don't do that, it's going to be an ugly day when we have some conversation later. But once you have a budget in your ministry area, you're empowered to spend that budget. Some requests are placed in elder reserve, which requires approval. Let me explain that. Vitally important. For years, what we would do is people would make these requests, and they wanted to buy a bunch of big stuff. Let's say, it, notoriously, it's the, the worship and arts group. You know, they got all this equipment that they want to buy. Okay? No, no, no. Listen, I, I get it. We want all the benefits of all that equipment, right? I mean, all of us want that. And the worship and arts guys, they just know how much it costs. So they're asking for this equipment. But sometimes what would happen is we'd have all these requests, but then we wouldn't have the time, energy, resources, whatever, to actually buy and install or, you know, maybe it's some other capital item in some other area. Student ministry wanted to do some crazy big event. It was going to cost $8,000 to do this big event. And uh, it got put in their budget, and they never did it. So then it comes to the end of the budget year, and with our value set, that means they can, they're empowered to spend their budget. And these dudes are thinking, dude, we have $8,000 in our budget. What do we need to buy? Because, you know, when the budget year's over, all that's gone. And so then there's a like, spin fest at the end of the year. So what we chose to do then is move those big-ticket items into what we call an elder reserve and that means you got the money, but when it's time to draw on that money, then you come back to the elders and just say, we're ready to do that. Nothing's changed. It's exactly as we requested. And typically our elders just say, yep, they asked for it. We gave it. And so we empower that. But what we didn't do is we didn't lock up that money in their budget so that we could not use that money. Again, zero-based budget. Use all the money we can for the sake of the kingdom, advance the kingdom in the time that we have. And so um, that allows us then to have a greater access to resources that might get locked up in somebody's budget. Yeah. Is there a number amount, a dollar amount that gets Yeah, we, we don't have a specific, uh, you know, ceiling that, or threshold that just says that, that needs to be considered for elder reserve. It's typically uh, just anything that we think is a bigger, I'm sorry, that doesn't help you, I know. Um, if it's not operational or if it's out of the ordinary, it could be as small as $400, no kidding, in a $7 million budget. But we would do it for the sake of organizational discipline. 
So um, next, elder discretion is set aside for generosity and discretionary spending. So we also have a fund that we, we set aside significant money so that if the Spirit should prompt our elders to give somebody, you know, $10,000 or, you know, $50,000, uh, maybe it's a church plant that, you know, had a tornado come through. I mean, actually, that's one of the things that happened when things went through um, Oklahoma and uh, some our actually nine pastors suffered. You know, our elders said, we want to help those guys. And, you know, we're able to just access thousands of dollars because we have a, a discretionary uh, spending account for that. Now, let me warn you. We are 21 years old. I'm a founding pastor. Our executive pastor has been with us 21 years. So we have a lot of trust. If you start out with a discretionary elder fund, that probably won't build a lot of trust because what you're really asking for is a slush fund, right? But when we've demonstrated that the tightest people in the church are the guys that hold the checkbook. Now, that doesn't mean we're never generous or splurging for the sake of celebrating people. It does mean, though, that we've demonstrated we're not just going to go crazy and spend a bunch of money. Well, because we have that foundation, then uh, this has never been a problem or hasn't been a problem in the last five years, which is about how long we've had it. All right, then... Uh, Budget giving is for operational costs. Capital giving is for capital costs. This is for every entrepreneurial-minded guy in the room. I'm one of you. I realize that sometimes you just want to do whatever it takes to get to that next step. For a church planter, that's what I strongly urge guys to be like and to do. For instance, you know, guys come from larger churches. They're going to plant a church, and they present me with their annual budget. I, in I intentionally go off on them annual budget you don't know if you're going to be here three months from now you don't need an annual budget you need to know how churches are planted and there are certain mile markers that you have to hit and that means you do everything you can to get to that mile marker and when you do it's going to open some doors and you can consider what that next mile marker is and how much money it's going to take and how much effort it's going to take but don't give me an annual budget you have no rhythm you have no history okay so on the other hand, there are people who they have history and they're raising money and they're going to hire somebody with that money. And those are capital dollars given to you. They're a one-time gift. And so I would highly discourage that. But if you do that, please, you know, be honest with the guy. Just say, listen, we're hiring you with money that somebody gave us and we have no clue if we're going to get that money ever again or if you're going to fit in the budget. So I'm hiring you for X amount of months. That's all the money I know I have. And hopefully we can work it in the budget. Okay, Just at least come clean and you know, tell them the whole truth about that. So capital giving for capital costs. Uh, don't use capital money for operational costs, my opinion. Uh, excess cash allocated with recommendations from the elders to the finance team. Um, Man, who gets to do this? And we have for years now. Uh, because we're very conservative in our spending, each year we have excess cash. That just means we have money left over where we didn't spend as much as we said we were going to spend and people gave more than we had budgeted. And it gives us a lot of opportunity for generosity and for growth. So how then do we help with the... Uh, uh, our strategy to, to raise funds uh, within the church. 
Um, you know what, I'm going to go through this really quickly because these guys, did, they just killed it in the last session. So uh, we would say teaching is a, a primary way that we do that, as well as our small group through spiritual formation. Uh, discipleship is the issue. This is about a heart issue. Uh, Ryan and I were talking about this at the break, you know, that the driving force behind people giving is about their heart. It's about their heart for Jesus. And so uh, what we want to do is make sure that for us, our strategy is that spiritual formation happens primarily in the, our uh, community life, and uh, so that's, that's the focus of a lot of our teaching. We do use Financial Peace University. We've tested a whole lot of different um, you know, systems of teaching about giving and stuff, uh, and while we think others may have more biblical foundation, um, it just seems like it's hard for people to listen to a lot of that. So we... We do financial peace and then hopefully uh, undergird with more theological foundation. Uh, we do a generosity challenge with our folks, which means we actually challenge them to 21 days of receiving daily devotions with giving, and we challenge them to begin to tithe. Uh, and I know I just said a dirty word for a lot of you in the room, uh, the tithe word. But uh, you know, for us, we embrace the tithe not as any kind of law, but as a, an Old Testament picture of what generosity uh, began with, and, <clears throat> excuse me, and so we believe that grace exceeds the law, that people should be giving at least at the, at the point of tithe, and so we actually teach about that as well, and then uh, in our membership commitment, so um, if this is what you want attention, if you want to give some attention to these things, but you weren't in the last session, uh, get the last session, it's better than all that, so reporting, uh, part of stewarding the money that God has given us is to do reporting, one of the places you want to do your reporting is to banks. Listen, if you're a younger church planter, I, re I realize you guys are 800 to 2,000, all that stuff. Uh, if, if you're at 800 and you're just now at 800 and you're just a few years old, here's one of the things you do. When you report all the details, and I mean all the details, of your financial dealings, uh, both your receipts, how you spend money, choices you make, all that stuff, to your banker, and you do that regularly, uh, Either you or one of your elders or your executive pastor takes him to lunch or to lunch, shows them your whole story. You keep them updated. This is the kind of trust that you want to build so that when you need money, and sometimes we need money because an opportunity comes up like this, right? Uh, then your, your banking portfolio has built enough trust with them that you can get money quickly. So keep a current prospectus. Um, and some of the notes that I have, if you don't know what a prospectus is, then it'll give you what you need to have in that prospectus. Let me tell you a quick story. We, uh, we've been looking for land for our West Campus for six years. Six years. We've made 12 offers on land, and none of them have been accepted. Uh, we offered uh, $4 million for 12 acres of land, and the guys laughed at us. It just wasn't enough money. So about uh, three weeks ago, uh, 136 acres on one of the main thoroughfares in our area uh, came available because uh, someone defaulted on the loan. They'd bought it for $12.5 million. They'd paid that loan down to $6.5 million, and the bank was just trying to get their money. And so literally in seven days, we were in a contract for $6 million. And here's why that was so significant, because... Because we have such a good relationship with our bank, we, we carry a $7 million line of credit. We're going to write a check for $7 million without even calling the banker. 
Now, we wouldn't dare do that, but we could. And when we did call the banker, he said, sure. You want $6 million? We, right, you have a $7 million on credit. So that takes time. That takes developing a lot of relationship. That's what trust looks like with a banker. And then how would he, do we communicate with uh, our members uh, through reporting systems? We update our website uh, weekly. So anytime you can go on our website right now and you can see kind of where we are in terms of our giving, this is what that looks like. I don't know if you can read that from there, but uh, we talk about our processes somewhat. And then if you could click on that contribution update or that quarterly financial update, a person can get both their personal as well as the overall church um, you know, financial information at that point. And then we update uh, givers quarterly and then we put out an annual report much like what Harvey was talking about in the last session, and that annual report, you know, we just want to celebrate. We, we want to create the scorecard in the lives of people, in the minds of people, about what Jesus' church ought to be about. So we're going to celebrate church plants and church planters and new leaders, and uh, obviously people who come to faith and the baptisms and uh, new, um, new groups and so on. All right, last thing I want to mention is just capital campaigns because I know some of you are in that season. We've done five capital campaigns. Uh, we think it takes about 18 months minimum, and I mean minimum, from the time we decide we're going to do a capital campaign until the day we start receiving money from people. It takes about 18 months. In that 18 months, we think there are two seasons of vision. There's a primary season of vision where we give people kind of warning of what is to come. And then while we're working in the boardroom on a strategy and a plan, both for the giving campaign, because every building, some of you know this, uh, includes a season of raising money and a season of planning for that facility. Those are two different functions altogether that oftentimes come together in the communication piece to the congregation. But it takes us months to get ready. And then we do another vision campaign leading up to the time where we actually start talking about money and people giving uh, to this uh, capital campaign. Um, we add support. We don't hire consultants. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't hire a consultant. Some of you should if you can't add uh, qualified support. But by support, I mean we actually add staff people for a season. We, we tell them we're going to hire you for six months. And you're going to manage this process. And typically, there are people who are like process engineers or whatever that can help us uh, through that process. And then uh, what we have done is our campaigns have been a two- or three-year, over and above, regular giving kind of campaign to raise money for facilities. Uh, because we regularly do this, we choose most often to go with a two-year instead of a three-year campaign. People don't seem to be able to maintain interest for that, uh, that long. All right, if you want further information about anything I've said, um, don't call me. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, Mark Carden is our executive pastor. Um, Mark was added to our team. He was a, a partner with uh, Price, Waterhouse, Price Waterhouse Coopers, uh, left his partnership, came to work as our executive pastor. He's brilliant in terms of you know, all kinds of financial systems and uh, is a true servant and would be happy to answer any of your questions uh, as well as send you any copies of, of different forms that we have in use. All right? I tried to talk fast so we'd have time for questions. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Sagemont Church. It's older than our church, but uh, John Morgan, it's a Baptist church. Uh, John Morgan, who's a pastor of that church, 
that's, that's his thing. I mean, he, he just believes that debt is wrong, uh, that it is, you know, a violation of even Scripture. And he would, he would try to build a biblical case for that. I don't agree with his interpretation of some passages, obviously, uh, because we, we don't feel like we're violating Scripture in any way. We think we're heeding warning uh, by not going into debt too deeply. But they have um, their church of probably, gosh, somebody know, 6,000 people. Uh, and 35 years old uh, on the south side of Houston. So, yeah, that's a, they've never carried debt. And they're one of the most generous churches you will ever be around. So not only do they, you know, they're not one of those guys that are churches that are putting all their money in the chest because they're not going to have debt. They're one of those churches that really believes that generosity is what stimulates generosity because it demonstrates the gospel. So they're, they're good folks. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, usually if someone enters the generosity challenge, they're somewhat motivated already. So understand that our, um, our, our pool of feedback is coming from previously motivated people. Uh, our generosity challenge is led by a generosity team in our church. So some of our uh, largest givers are all a part of a team that works with our executive pastor. And so they lead that process it's a uh, two-day retreat that then follow, is followed by 21 days of daily devotions that are coming to a person. And we're inviting all the time stories of how God has demonstrated his faithfulness to you in the midst of your generosity. And so in those 21 days, people are receiving uh, very direct kind of uh, next steps. So today, uh, write a note to someone who is significant to you. Okay, That's a, a generous act. Uh, today... Uh, buy the coffee for the person behind you in line, or whatever. You know, it's it's a lot of simple acts like that, but then gets more significant in terms of a call and challenge. So we get lots of stories, but understand those stories are stimulated by the process itself, rather than you know just somebody chose to feed back to us. Um, and what we found is, yeah, people who are part of that process, they they definitely grow in their generosity. Um, I can't give you a specific metric. Uh, I, also, I, read, I pulled up on the website, it was like a 90-day gift. And we'll, if you don't believe God works in some way, yeah. we'll give it back. And yeah. Yes. And uh, so in doing this, what we've tried to do is take away the fear factor and let people jump in and just say, I'm going to do that. I'm going to give the first tenth to God. And we've said... We, you know, we'll give it back to you. We have given back money to people who said, you know what? I did that for 90 days, and something's happened in my life, and I want my money back. We write them a check. I wish our executive pastor was standing here. I'm sorry. I, his name is Mark Carden, mcarden at clearcreek.org. Seriously, he would love to answer that question. He... He, this is a passion for him. He would love to dialogue with you about that. And uh, so feel free to send him uh, an email. He'll respond. Yeah. So on the capital campaign, you had some people about you know, how long that took on average and what that looked like. Did you guys see just an average uh, number like, okay, hey, over that two years, it's X amount of dollars compared to our annual budget or it's over 
Yeah, for us, it's about uh, 100% of our annual budget over two years. So that's generally uh, the number. Yeah, good question. Um, the way we have chosen to set goals is not to just have arbitrary goals to say this is how much money we, you know, we want to raise and so we want to try to stimulate or, or motivate you with, with our number. What we actually do is we say if we get this amount of money, we're going to do this. If we get this amount of money, we're going to do this. Um, our last capital campaign, what we, we painted a picture for people and said we need $13 million. Okay. <laughs> We got nowhere near $13 million. We already had some money in savings. Um, we, with all the cash we had and the pledges that we had for the campaign, we, um, I think, had about $10 million that we expected to receive. And both in, well, we had in savings or expected to receive through the pledges. And I think our receipts were right at 80% of what was pledged. Our previous campaign, uh, our receipts were right at 95%, and part of what made that different is because uh, we focused on five commitments rather than the one commitment for dollars, and uh, in my opinion, that was a better way to go. And every generosity consultant said, this is going to kill your campaign. It's too much complexity, they said, you know, when you're asking for five commitments. We, we ask people to commit to be a part of a community group, we call those just small groups. We ask for people to begin to give regularly to our annual budget. And if, if they're not already doing that in a, you know, what we think is a biblical uh, you know, amount, that don't even give to the capital campaign. Learn to give regularly. And so anyway, that's um, how we treated that. What were the other three? Excuse me? You said five. Uh, pray for your lost friends daily. Uh, that was one of the commitments. Uh, serve in a ministry, go to a campus closest to your house. Right. Sure. Um, there are people who, for instance, they, they want you to build a skate park on your property. And our, our kids need a skate park. My grandson, he loves to skate, but he doesn't love Jesus. So I want to build a skate park. So, no, we're not going to build a skate park. If, if, and we would say, if a skate park was a part of our vision, we'd build a skate park in a heartbeat. But your money's not going to define our vision. So, yeah. Y'all have any kind of uh, liturgy, if you will, or calendaring system for when you talk about uh, giving throughout the year slash vision? Does it just kind of follow the sermon series or the target I just said, man, if, if you would just tell our executive pastor that you asked me that question, he'd probably buy you lunch. Because no, we don't. But he sure wants me to have that uh, as a part of our liturgy. And, uh, and he's right. I just haven't gotten there yet. So. He, he said, do we have a, a regular liturgy or a calendar where we focus on finances? Is that right? Right, finances, getting involved, vision, just those kinds of things. Yeah. So um, 
I could show you our preaching calendar over 20 years, the times that I've done series on money or giving, and if I charted our giving with that, every time, 100% of the time, our giving goes up and stays up. 100% of the time. And the last giving series we did, I'm not even going to tell you that. It's 2008. But we, we teach on giving, but the last series we did was 2008. And I only know that because our executive pastor is, must be wired like you. So, Anybody else? Yes. Yeah, that is a great question. Gentlemen, that is a great question. And the reason it's a great question is because you will have seasons where God, by His grace, just you, your church blows up. And when your church blows up, you cannot serve people <laughs> if you don't have adequate staffing to serve people well. And so in 1996, our church grew by 60% in one year. And in that one year, we, I mean, we were, you know, really committed that year and the next to adding the staffing to shepherd well the people that got entrusted to us. And so, yes, uh, I, I think our um, budget or our personnel giving went to 60%. But again, we started pushing it back down as well uh, to try to keep that in our minds, in balance. Okay? Yeah. In the period leading up to your, your 21 days, and I think last week, do you use a process of preparing the leaders, training small group leaders, and so forth, and give them a heads up of what's coming, discipleship wise? What can you yeah. to, to be prepared for that, that period? Yeah, that's a great question. Let, let me kind of back up on this a little bit and say, we require all of our small group leaders, they have to give at least at a 10% level or they cannot be a small group leader. Uh, There's a lot of questions about accountability in the last session. You know, for us, that's, uh, small group leaders meet with a, a group guide with us and uh, that group guide says, this is what our records show you're giving. Is that at least 10% of your giving? I mean, it's a very direct accountability uh, exercise. And therefore, our small group leaders are all aware of our overall strategy for spiritual formation. The generosity challenge is a, uh, it's an ongoing process. So they're aware of that ongoing process, but they aren't necessarily given you know, a fresh heads up every time a new generosity challenge begins. I say that. If, if they're given an up, uh, a heads up about it, it's simply in their regular update because they get a regular update. This is what's coming. This is what we need from you. And it comes from their group guides uh, along the way. Yeah. So are those generosity challenges, are those corporate, or are those just individual, I can enter that at any season, or are you guys corporately calling the congregation if you've not been before, or even if you have, maybe you're saying that? How's that? Yeah, it's a great question. It's both. Okay. Um, so sometimes we do a corporate thing. We try to include more people in the generosity challenge. But generally, uh, the generosity challenge begins with a just, excuse me, a generosity retreat that's kind of uh, an evening and the next morning on a weekend. And so people are invited to come be a part of that. We'll have on average uh, these days maybe 70 people. So a relatively small group when you look at the big picture of our church. Are you 
personally inviting people maybe that are not giving? Are you inviting leaders? How, how do you determine who you need to make people? Yeah, the uh, mcarden at clearcreek.org. He's going to be busy. Yeah, I promise you he won't mind. Anybody else? All right, well, what was it in you that you heard and you thought, yeah, we do that better, or this is something that would serve everybody to hear that? What did you hear that you think maybe you could speak into, should speak into, in the way that you guys do it? Anybody have something like that? It's okay if you do it better, really. Serve everybody by sharing that. Just want to give you a shot. Oh, just thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks. Listen, um, if I could leave you with anything, it'd be this. When you get to that place where you have an executive pastor on your staff, I think a lot of our tendency is we're going to let that guy deal with all the money stuff, and I'm just going to teach the Bible and make our vision clear. I would urge you to stay engaged so that you feel the ultimate responsibility for helping God's people have a heart for Jesus in such a way that the number one idol in our culture, money, the only idol about which Jesus, only one I remember anyway, where Jesus said, you cannot serve God and the money God, mammon, at the same time, uh, that, that we make sure that we understand our whole church is constantly hearing from our leadership. Not just the behind-the-scenes executive guys, but pastors who are shepherding the hearts of people that, you know, this, this comes before, I mean, Jesus comes before this. This is always under Jesus. It's always submitted to him. So it's, they've got to feel that from, from us. And then when you have trust, man, God has given you a sacred gift. His people trust you. Don't ever, ever make a decision financially that you feel like you have to spin. Spin is lying. It's lying. So, even if what you choose to do with money creates some controversy and you have to answer hard questions, go that route. Because it is required of a steward that he be found what? Trustworthy, faithful. And that's the bottom line. Okay? Let me pray for us. Father, that is my prayer for us that we would be trustworthy. You've entrusted to us the mystery of the gospel. And Father, would you help us be so faithful that every opportunity that we open your word, that we press the gospel through whatever subject matter we're preaching, that we run straight to the cross and that we're faithful to you in the preaching of the gospel. And I pray that we would also be trustworthy in all the things that you've entrusted to us, one of which is the money of your church. And so I pray for pastors, executive pastors, elders, all the people in this room, Lord, that you would just turn up the heat in our heart, that we would value, treasure the trust of your people, and that we would honor and glorify you as we, as we steward that trust in the way that we budget, the way that we spend, the way that we call for offerings, 
the way that we even receive our own salary and the way that we spend money that's coming out of our own bank account, may it all be uh, something that brings you glory and builds the trust of your people. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.